Chapter Fourteen of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Buckthorn, Part Two. I had not slept long when I was awakened by the noise of merriment within an adjoining booth. It was the itinerant theatre, rudely constructed of boards and canvas. I peeped through an aperture and saw the whole dramatis personae, tragedy, comedy, pantomime, all refreshing themselves after the final dismissal of their auditors. They were merry and gamesome, and made their flimsy theatre ring with laughter. I was astonished to see the tragedy tyrant in red bays and fierce whiskers, who had made my heart quake as he strutted about the boards, now transformed into a fat, good-humoured fellow. The beaming porringer laid aside from his brow, and his jolly face washed from all the terrors of burnt cork. I was delighted, too, to see the distressed damsel in faded silk and dirty muslin, who had trembled under his tyranny, and afflicted me so much by her sorrows, now seated familiarly on his knee, and quaffing from the same tankard. Harlequin lay asleep on one of the benches, and monks, satyrs, and vestal virgins were grouped together laughing outrageously at a broad story told by an unhappy count, who had been barbarously murdered in the tragedy. This was, indeed, novelty to me. It was a peep into another planet. I gazed and listened with intense curiosity and enjoyment. They had a thousand odd stories and jokes about the events of the day, and burlesque descriptions and mimickings of the spectators who had been admiring them. Their conversation was full of allusions to their adventures at different places, where they had exhibited the characters they had met with in different villages, and the ludicrous difficulties in which they had occasionally been involved. All past cares and troubles were now turned by these thoughtless beings into matter of merriment, and made to contribute to the gaiety of the moment. They had been moving from fair to fair about the kingdom, and were the next morning to set out on their way to London. My resolution was taken. I crept from my nest and scrambled through a hedge into a neighboring field, where I went to work to make a tandermalion of myself. I tore my clothes, soiled them with dirt, begrimed my face and hands, and, crawling near one of the booths, purloined an old hat, and left my new one in its place. It was an honest theft, and I hope may not hereafter rise up in judgment against me. I now ventured to the scene of merrymaking and presenting myself before the dramatic corps, offered myself as a volunteer. I felt terribly agitated and abashed, for never before stood I in such a presence. I had addressed myself to the manager of the company. He was a fat man, dressed in dirty white, with a red sash fringed with tinsel, swathed around his body. His face was smeared with paint, and a majestic plume towered from an old spangled black bonnet. He was the Jupiter Tonas of his Olympus, and was surrounded by the interior gods and goddesses of his court. He sat on the end of a bench, by a table, with one arm akimbo, and the other extended to the handle of a tankard, which he had slowly set down from his lips, as he surveyed me from head to foot. It was a moment of awful scrutiny, and I fancied the groups around all watching us in silent suspense, and waiting for the imperial nod. He questioned me as to who I was, what were my qualifications, and what terms I expected. I passed off for a discharged servant from a gentleman's family, 
and as happily one does not require a special recommendation to get admitted into bad company the questions on that head were easily satisfied as to my accomplishments i would spout a little poetry and knew several scenes of plays which i had learnt at school exhibitions i could dance that was enough no further questions were asked me as to accomplishments it was the very thing they wanted and as i asked no wages but merely meat and drink and safe conduct about the world a bargain was struck in a moment behold me therefore transformed of a sudden from a gentleman student to a dancing buffoon for such in fact was the character in which i made my debut i was one of those who formed the groups in the dramas and were principally employed on the stage in front of the booth to attract company i was equipped as a satyr in a dress of drab frieze that fitted to my shape with a great laughing mask ornamented with huge ears and short horns i was pleased with the disguise because it kept me from the danger of being discovered whilst we were in that part of the country and as i had merely to dance and make antics the character was favourable to a debutante being almost on a par with simon snug's part of the lion which required nothing but roaring i cannot tell you how happy i was at this sudden change in my situation i felt no degradation for i had seen too little of society to be thoughtful about the differences of rank and a boy of sixteen is seldom aristocratical i had given up no friend for there seemed to be no one in the world that cared for me now my poor mother was dead i had given up no pleasure for my pleasure was to ramble about and indulge the flow of a poetical imagination and i now enjoyed it in perfection there is no life so truly poetical as that of a dancing buffoon it may be said that all this argued grovelling inclinations i do not think so not that i mean to vindicate myself in any great degree i know too well what a whimsical compound i am but in this instance i was seduced by no love of low company nor disposition to indulge in low vices i have always despised the brutally vulgar and i have always had a disgust at vice whether in high or low life i was governed merely by a sudden and thoughtless impulse i had no idea of resorting to this profession as a mode of life or of attaching myself to these people as my future class of society i thought merely of a temporary gratification of my curiosity and an indulgence of my humours i had already a strong relish for the peculiarities of character and the varieties of situation and i have always been fond of the comedy of life and desirous of seeing it through in all its shifting scenes and mingling therefore among mountebanks and buffoons i was protected by the very vivacity of imagination which had led me among them i moved about enveloped as it were in a protecting delusion which my fancy spread around me i assimilated to these people only as they struck me poetically the whimsical ways and a certain picturesqueness in their mode of life entertained me but i was neither amused nor corrupted by their vices in short i mingled among them as prince hal did among his graceless associates merely to gratify my humour i did not investigate my motives in this manner at the time for i was too careless and thoughtless to reason about the matter but i do so now when i look back with trembling to think of the ordeal to which i unthinkingly exposed myself and the manner in which i passed through it nothing i am convinced but the poetical temperament that hurried me into the scrape brought me out of it without my becoming an errant vagabond full of the enjoyment of the moment giddy with the wildness of animal spirits 
so rapturous in a boy i capered i danced i played a thousand fantastic tricks about the stage in which the villages in which we exhibited and i was universally pronounced the most agreeable monster that had ever been seen in those parts my disappearance from school had awakened my father's anxiety for i one day heard a description of myself cried before the very booth in which i was exhibiting with the offer of a reward for any intelligence of me i had no great scruple about letting my father suffer a little uneasiness on my account it would punish him for the past indifference and would make him value me more when he found me again i have wondered that some of my comrades did not recognize in me the stray sheep that was cried but they were all no doubt occupied by their own concerns they were all laboring seriously in their antic vocations for folly was a mere trade with the most of them and they often grinned and capered with heavy hearts with me on the contrary it was all real i acted con amore and rattled and laughed from the irrepressible gaiety of my spirits it is true that now and then i started and looked grave on receiving a sudden thwack from the wooden sword of harlequin in the course of my gambols as i brought to mind the birch of my schoolmaster but i soon got accustomed to it and wore all the cuffing and kicking and tumbling about that formed the practical wit of your itinerant pantomime with a good humour that made me a prodigious favourite the country campaign of the troop was soon at an end and we set off for the metropolis to perform at the fairs which are held in its vicinity the greater part of our theatrical property was sent on direct to be in a state of preparation for the opening of the fairs while a detachment of the company travelled slowly on foraging among the villages i was amused with the desultory haphazard kind of life we led here to-day and gone to-morrow sometimes revelling in alehouses sometimes feasting under the hedges in the green fields when audiences were crowded and business profitable we fared well and when otherwise we fared scantily and consoled ourselves with anticipations of the next day's success at length the increasing frequency of coaches hurrying past us covered with passengers the increasing number of carriages carts wagons gigs droves of cattle and flocks of sheep all thronging the road the snug country boxes the trim flower gardens twelve feet square and their trees twelve feet high all powdered with dust and the innumerable seminaries for young ladies and gentlemen situated along the road for the benefit of country air and rural retirement all these assignia announced that the mighty london was at hand the hurry and the crowd and the bustle and the noise and the dust increased as we had proceeded until i saw the great cloud of smoke hanging in the air a canopy of state over this queen of cities in this way then did i enter the metropolis a strolling vagabond on the top of a caravan with a crew of vagabonds about me but i was as happy as a prince for like prince hal i felt myself superior to my situation and knew that i could at any time cast it off and emerge into my proper sphere how my eyes sparkled as we passed hyde park corner and i saw splendid equipages rolling by with powdered footmen behind in rich liveries and fine nosegays and gold-headed canes and with lovely women within so sumptuously dressed and so surpassingly fair i was always extremely sensible to female beauty and here i saw it in all its fascination for whatever may be said of beauty unadorned there is something almost awful in female loveliness decked out in jewelled state the swan-like neck encircled with diamonds the raven locks clustered with pearls 
the ruby glowing on the snowy bosom are objects that i could never contemplate without emotion and a dazzling white arm clasped with bracelets and taper transparent fingers laden with sparkling rings are to me irresistible my very eyes ached as i gazed at the high and courtly beauty that passed before me it surpassed all that my imagination had conceived of the sex i shrunk for a moment into shame at the company in which i was placed and repined at the vast distance that seemed to intervene between me and these magnificent beings i forbear to give a detail of the happy life which i led about the skirts of the metropolis playing at the various fairs held there during the latter part of spring and the beginning of summer this continual change from place to place and scene to scene fed my imagination with novelties and kept my spirits in a perpetual state of excitement as i was tall of my age i aspired at one time to play heroes in tragedy but after two or three trials i was pronounced by the manager totally unfit for the line and our first tragic actress who was a large woman and held a small hero in abhorrence confirmed his decision the fact is i had attempted to give point to language which had no point and nature to scenes which had no nature they said i did not fill out my characters and they were right the characters had all been prepared for a different sort of man our tragedy hero was a round robustious fellow with an amazing voice who stamped and slapped his breast until his wig shook again and who roared and bellowed out his bombast until every phrase swelled upon the ear like the sound of a kettle drum i might as well have attempted to fill out his clothes as his characters when we had a dialogue together i was nothing before him with my slender voice and discriminating manner i might as well have attempted to parry a cudgel with a small sword if he found me in any way getting ground upon him he would take refuge in his mighty voice and throw his tones like peals of thunder at me until they were drowned in the still louder thunders of applause from the audience to tell the truth i suspect that i was not shown fair play and that there was management at the bottom for without vanity i think i was a better actor than he as i had not embarked in the vagabond line through ambition i did not repine at lack of preferment but i was grieved to find that a vagrant life was not without its cares and anxieties and that jealousies intrigues and mad ambition were to be found even among vagabonds indeed as i become more familiar with my situation and the delusions of fancy began to fade away i discovered that my associates were not the happy careless creatures i had at first imagined them they were jealous of each other's talents they quarrelled about parts the same as the actors on the grand theatres they quarrelled about dresses and there was one robe of yellow silk trimmed with red and the headdress of three rumpled ostrich feathers which were continually setting the ladies of the company by the ears even those who had attained the highest honours were not more happy than the rest for mr flimsy himself our first tragedian and apparently a jovial good-humoured fellow confessed to me one day in the fullness of his heart that he was a miserable man he had a brother-in-law a relative by marriage though not by blood who was manager of a theatre in a small country town and this same brother a little more than kin but less than kind looked down upon him and treated him with contumely because forsooth he was but a strolling player i tried to console him with the thoughts of the vast applause he daily received but it was all in vain 
he declared that it gave him no delight and that he should never be a happy man until the name of flimsy rivaled the name of crimp how little do those before the scenes know of what passes behind how little can they judge from the countenances of actors of what is passing in their hearts i have known two lovers quarrel like cats behind the scenes who were the moment after ready to fly into each other's embraces and i have dreaded when our belvedere was to take her farewell kiss of her jaffer lest she should bite a piece out of his cheek our tragedian was a rough joker off the stage our prime clown the most peevish mortal living the latter used to go about snapping and snarling with a broad laugh painted on his countenance and i can assure you that whatever may be said of the gravity of a monkey or the melancholy of a gibbed cat there is no more melancholy creature in existence than a mountebank off duty the only thing in which all parties agreed was to backbite the manager and cabal against his regulations this however i have since discovered to be a common trait of human nature and to take place in all communities it would seem to be the main business of man to repine at government in all situations of life into which i have looked i have found mankind divided into two grand parties those who ride and those who are ridden the great struggle of life seems to be which shall keep in the saddle this it appears to me is the fundamental principle of politics whether in great or little life however i do not mean to moralize but one cannot always sink the philosopher well then to return to myself it was determined as i said that i was not fit for tragedy and unluckily as my study was bad having a very poor memory i was pronounced unfit for comedy also besides the line of young gentlemen was already engrossed by an actor with whom i could not pretend to enter into competition he having filled it for almost half a century i came down again therefore to pantomime in consequence however of the good offices of the manager's lady who had taken a liking to me i was promoted from the part of the satyr to that of the lover and with my face patched and painted a huge cravat of paper a steeple-crowned hat and dangling long-skirted sky-blue coat was metamorphosed into the lover of columbine my part did not call for much of the tender and sentimental i had merely to pursue the fugitive fair one to have a door now and then slammed in my face to run my head occasionally against a post to tumble and roll about with pantaloon and the clown and to endure the hearty thwacks of harlequin's wooden sword as ill luck would have it my poetical temperament began to ferment within me and to work out new troubles the inflammatory air of a great metropolis added to the rural scenes in which the fairs were held such as greenwich park epping forest and the lovely valley of the west end had a powerful effect upon me while in greenwich park i was witness to the old holiday games of running down hill and kissing in the ring and then the firmament of blooming faces and blue eyes that would be turned towards me as i was playing antics on the stage all these set my young blood in my poetical vein in full flow in short i played my character to the life and became desperately enamoured of columbine she was a trim well-made tempting girl with a roguish dimpling face and fine chestnut hair clustering all about it the moment i got fairly smitten there was an end to all playing i was such a creature of fancy and feeling that i could not put on a pretended when i was powerfully affected by a real emotion i could not sport with a fiction that came so near to the fact and became too natural in my acting to succeed and then what a situation for a lover 
I was a mere stripling, and she played with my passion, for girls soon grow more adroit and knowing in these than your awkward youngsters. What agonies I had to suffer! Every time that she danced in front of the booth, and made such liberal displays of her charms, I was in torment. To complete my misery, I had a real rival in Harlequin, an active, vigorous, knowing varlet of six-and-twenty. What had a raw, inexperienced youngster like me to hope from such a competition? I had still, however, some advantages in my favor. In spite of my change of life, I retained that indescribable something which always distinguishes the gentleman, that something which dwells in a man's air and deportment, and not in his clothes, and which is as difficult for a gentleman to put off as for a vulgar fellow to put on. The company generally felt it, and used to call me Little Gentleman Jack. The girl felt it, too, and in spite of her predilection for my powerful rival, she liked to flirt with me. This only aggravated my troubles by increasing my passion and awakening the jealousy of her party-colored lover. Alas, think what I suffered at being obliged to keep up an ineffectual chase after my columbine through whole pantomimes, to see her carried off in the vigorous arms of the happy harlequin, and to be obliged instead of snatching her from him, to tumble sprawling with pantaloon and the clown, and bear the infernal and degrading thwacks of my rival's weapon of life, which, may heaven confound him, excuse my passion, the villain laid on with a malicious good will. Nay, I could absolutely hear him chuckle and laugh beneath his accursed mask. I beg pardon for growing a little warm in my narration. I wish to be cool, but these recollections will sometimes agitate me. I have heard and read of many desperate and deplorable situations of lovers, but none, I think, in which true love was ever exposed to so severe and peculiar a trial. This could not last long. Flesh and blood, at least such flesh and blood as mine, could not bear it. I had repeated heart-burnings and quarrels with my rival, in which he treated me with the mortifying forbearance of a man towards a child. Had he quarreled outright with me, I could have stomached it, at least I should have known what part to take, but to be humoured and treated as a child in the presence of my mistress, when I felt all the bantam spirit of a little man swelling within me, God's, it was insufferable. End of chapter 14 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida